Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. February 12th, 2023, episode 221, Super Sunday. Hello everyone, welcome into the corner. Kevin England back again on one of the holiest days of the year for most Americans. It's Super Bowl Sunday. I'm so excited to sit behind the microphone and get back to our typical format for this show. Today I'm going to have a wide mix of different topics to talk about and that's a lot of fun to step through. Before I head into the episode, I'm just going to take a sidebar moment to say that the Managed Mentoring Program for Getting Started in Beekeeping is underway as of this week. While my head conjured one way of doing things, my mind reconciled reality and I executed the plan that's in front of me to launch the program based on time available. If you want to get started in beekeeping and you want a little support, we have a program for you, especially if you are in New Jersey and or the Mid-Atlantic region. Visit managedmentoring.com and click on the Start Here link. Read the prerequisite details and then head to the Manage Mentoring Program tab on the website and start in on the video lessons. When you get to the Start Here page, there's a registration page. Click a note on that will add you to the mailing list and that'll get you the invites to the online sessions. From there, you can begin the video lessons with the introduction that explains the program and then lead you through the first round of lessons, all available from the 2023 calendar year one. As I get zen with how things are playing out, I think uh, calling the program live is not a bad thing, but this year is kind of be one of those years where we operate under the radar. That's my guess. There really should have been a lot of promotion of the program starting last fall. And even our model association, Northwest, has not met with new beekeepers yet to let them know about the program. So, so far, the uh, registrations are kind of on the low side, but I'm keeping the faith all in good time. That's what I keep telling myself. And I'm confident that if you build it, they will come. So let's get down to business with a quick run through of what we have in store for this episode. First up. Messing up the interior of a hive on purpose. Why would you do this? I'll tell you of a compelling reason to consider it. Round table number two. We're going to talk about the windshield phenomena. Round table number three. There's a new compound to combat varroa mites working its way through the ringers. I'll give you the first preview. Round table number four. Everything is better with honey. And an infusion to consider. Number five, be free no more. I'll talk about discovering that the vegan honey product is no longer on the market. Number six, I have great news about the New Jersey Cottage Law. And number seven, yeah, there are seven round tables and you're going to get your money's worth this time around. Yeah, actually, sorry. It's not that big of a deal, but I'm going to talk about some attractive glass jars that I found that hopefully will come back again. For topic number one, take a journey with me as I discuss the geography of New Jersey and analyze what's really going on when it comes to how it impacts our weather. And our second topic, a recipe to share for caramelized honey gelato. Wow, I'm kind of worn out going over the agenda. 
Let me say one thing real quick before heading in. If you like the show, hit the follow button, subscribe button, whatever it is you have in your podcast tool, and let your friends know about it. That would really help us out. Our website is www.bkcorner.org, and there you can look for the show notes for episode 221 and browse the catalog of all of our previous shows, see some presentations that I've done at large, and a bunch of other things. So best get to it. Here we go to roundtable number one. Roundtable number one, switching it up. In this roundtable, I'm going to come back to sharing the notions of things we heard that were interesting at the Eastern Apiculture Society conference that we left behind. This will be the first in a line of these that will find their way into upcoming episodes. As you'll note, many of the items will be something small picked up on or a recount of some research that summed up a finding of interest. In this case of the first one, it's one of the small things that makes you pause and ask yourself what is really going on inside the colony. On Monday morning of EAS, James Wilson presented on making splits. James, an associate professor at the entomology department at Virginia Tech, ran through the dynamics of population growth, selection of resources for splits, and many of the items that coincide with the practice. Making splits is making splits, and customary to the practice, you select specific resources from the mother colony, and you move them off to a new box, and employ a method to provide for a queen in the source colony, as you've taken the queen with the split. In one part of the talk, James spoke of the time that the bees are preparing to swarm, and being a beekeeper that wants to keep the bees in the box and thwart swarming, we beekeepers would long to do something to forestall the swarm event while we prep for splitting the colony. He suggests that one practice that stalls a mustering swarm is to mess up, or said differently, rearrange the interior of the hive. Kevin moment. I was sitting next to Bob Kloss when he said that, and we both paused to give a sideways look to each other, which is a nonverbal communication between us to indicate here is something new that we've never heard of. End of Kevin moment. So of this notion, have you heard of it? To expand upon the concept and how it works, it seems to suggest that if you rearrange resources in the colony, it sets the bees back because they want things the way they want it. And the practice of switching things up will stop the bees from whatever they're doing and they will be compelled to put it back to some sort of agreeable formation, presumably in this case before they go off to swarming away. Now James was quick to say that this is just a temporary measure. And upon reflecting on the practice after the talk, both Bob and I had never heard of this suggestion of this technique. As to if it would work, after getting to spend some time with James, and a little more on that as life goes on, I think it might have some merit and believe him when he says it's a viable thing to do. For me, however, I would wonder how effective it would be, and more importantly, I would wonder if it would really impact the bees that were mustering to swarm. I've heard it repeated on several occasions over the years that if you put your frames back haphazardly after an inspection, it sets the bees back. Bees like, thus, set up the way they like it, and rearranging the order 
and or orientation of the frames as something that causes the bees to assign workers to correct this situation after you make changes. Either that, or the bees will think that, in one example, we had pollen next to this brood a moment ago, and now it's gone. Put it in a new order and inform the bees to bring back pollen. Put it back over where it was. I kind of like the picture of a construction job that was staged and someone came in, didn't know what they were doing, and rearranged everything. And now the foreman, or I guess in this case the forewoman, wants it back to the way that they want it. Now the question is, will this stop a colony of bees that theoretically has spent some energy in preparing to swarm, have a mission if you will, from heading out the entrance? Let's think that through, and I would like to ensure that one aspect of this is considered timing of the event. The first test is, do you believe this will cause the behavior change in the bees or impact their operation? Me personally, I say, yes, of course. As an aside, I write information on my frames as to when they were put into service, what manufacturer created the frames, and how old the foundation is. I make these remarks in a consistent way on the front edge of my bars with a Sharpie. So how do I know the front edge? Because I place the edge with the writing towards the front of my hives. Each time I do an inspection, pulling a frame for this and that, I make sure that when I put them back, they're in the right orientation, and I can tell that because the writing is up front. You do not have to be like me with the labeling, but you might consider placing some mark on a frame, say a small triangle or symbol on one end, and then you could do this too, just to ensure the symbol marked edge of the top bar is always consistently in the front. One thing I do not do, and I see beekeepers doing this on occasion, is label their frames 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and so on. I believe it's inevitable that switching frame positions is just part of the game. Management practices sometimes have you take a frame from the outside and bring it to the inside and so on. But when you open my hives, you'll see uniform marks at the front edge, and it's really easy to see if you put a frame in backwards. That's good for me because if I want to try this task, I could switch things around and know that I switch things around in that box and come back later and determine whether or not my change made any material impact. That should tell you that yes, I think there is merit in disrupting the bees by not keeping the hive organized in the way that the bees had it laid out naturally and I actually do strive to put everything back in the proper order that I got it from. So now to the aspect of whether this would preoccupy the bees enough to thwart them from swarming, hold them off so to speak, that is by my way of thinking plausible as James suggests, but I also feel that the notion could have aspects of wishful thinking given certain circumstances I can conjure up. By my way of thinking, I imagine it has to do with timing and behaviors. To illustrate my idea, consider a notion that one day the bees get an idea, let's swarm. Early on, the message is being communicated. What follows is, hey, we're going to swarm, pass it on. Okay, here's the plan, pass it on. Oh, here's the timeline, pass it on. This is this mustering state where the bees are all getting the message. 
We understand that at some point before the bees head for the door, preparations are in order and the bees will do things to prepare. They'll muster up on resources. They'll have a quiet time before the actual department departure. Said in a different way, some of the normal functions like foraging, wax building, and other activities that are inside the colony taper off for a short period because the bees are planning to partake or packing for the trip. Packing in the form of engorging on honey and subsequently waiting for that signal to go. Totally anamorphizing the description here, but hopefully painting a picture in your head about what's going on in the trenches. I think you can now consider that when you implement your switchover, timing may have a say on what happens. Let's pretend things are going along and the word is out, but it's early days. You, the beekeeper, come in and say, hmm, I wonder if my bees are going to swarm this week. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to switch things up and disrupt them in case they're thinking about it. I think the bees in the beginning of swarming are going to evaluate that impact. And while they are not on the precipice of swarming yet, will potentially be employed to correct the alterations wrought by the beekeeper. I would like to think, however, that if a bee was loaded with food ready to go and the timing was imminent to the say next day or next couple hours, that an intervention by the beekeeper would confuse things. But if some signal was sent that said, girls, time to go, and oh yeah, a couple of you boys got to go too, the swarm would head for the entrance. Whoever's left would be saddled with resolving what mess was left behind. And in short, the momentum of swarming got too far along the path, even with beekeeper intervention, and it was just a little too late to forestall the inevitable. So that little scenario is me playing it out, kind of playing war games in my head. It's simply one of the scenarios I found myself thinking about while trying to apply what I believe happens inside the box while a colony is mustering for a swarm and taking into consideration the technique that James laid out for us. Since we had that sideways glance, I did have an opportunity to speak to Bob and ask him what he thought of the technique as a practice. We both agreed in principle that it would likely have some impact, but without practicing, it's hard to know whether it'll actually stop the swarm. And that's where we come in that we want to try it. Best way to know, no offense to James, I believe James, he's a smart dude, is that you can learn from your own by trying it. Now, in my opinion, this be something to try if things prevented you from getting to splits and swarms were imminent. Let's say you walked out to the bee yard and you didn't have a chance and the season's starting early and you're behind and you can't make a split on the spot. What could you do? Try this. I cannot say that I would consider this as a technique in my arsenal that every year when I try to do swarm prevention, I'm going to go out there and just mix up the boxes in order to set them back. I would actually want to practice this to know that it worked before I'd say that's something I would work into my management routines. Still, this is an interesting thing to consider. That's the beauty of EAS. It's that you hear of things others do and you have to enjoy the creativity of others to discover such a practice and share it with everybody else. 
So a question to you, the listeners, ever hear of this? Have you ever done this? And if so, does it actually work? Inquiring minds want to know. I, for one, will keep it in the back of my mind, and as spring opportunity presents, if I'm behind, I think I'm going to try this and see if I can learn a little something. If you have feedback, kevin at bkcorner.org. Please write me and let me know what you think of this idea. Roundtable number two, sometimes you're over the windshield. There's one experience that you can appreciate more, but it should concern you, and that is driving down a country road and watching the world unfold out your windshield. This might sound counterintuitive, but the fact is, some remember in their youth mm -hmm, and see things differently. If you have circled the sun as long as I have, you probably remember that a trip somewhere in the summer meant a windshield full of bug splatter wherever you go. That little cleaning wand at the gas station for your windshields were actually a vital thing back in the day. The point is, observers have long held this notion that there are less bug splatters on the windshield as a barometer that our Earth is not the same. And they've even coined the term for this called windshield phenomenon. This idea has been populated by a number of groups simultaneously over the years. A group in Puerto Rico has been measuring splatter since the 1970s in hopes that they can assess the biomass of the rainforest there. And one report says they've seen a decline of what fell into the ground traps about 60 fold. If you perform a search about decline of biomass in bugs, you'll find a number of reports. A simple search yielded a number of responses when I took a peek the other day. One thing I found most interesting is from Kent, England, and it employed a citizen science experiment that you can actually download and operate in your area. They, the Kent Wildlife Trust out of the UK, this group devised a tracking method that uses a device affixed to your license plate you out on the road following their instructions and measure what you find and report back the data. The results, quote, the results show that a number of insects sampled on a vehicle number plates in the UK decreased by 58.5% between 2004 and 2021, and these differences were statistically significant, end quote. It seems that they are aware that this is just a barometer and caution everybody using the phrase low temporal resolution to say that there's a lot of factors that come into play that could have impact on the data. But I take it to read that it's good enough to show concern and they are kind of suggesting that the world take notice. In summary, they are using this windshield phenomena to bring light the fact that beneficial biomass of insects is declining overall. Okay, check. But my feasible mind wants to know the answer to something that's always intrigued me on the matter. It's the windshield thing, and I'm not alone. What about the splatters on the windshields? Do modern cars have anything to do with what registers on the windshield? I guess we know the answer because they chose license plates and not windshields, but... Being more specific, the answer to this question inquiring minds want to know. A prevailing theory is that the profile of cars back in the day with their boxy shapes and straight up windshields meant that bugs didn't slipstream past the glass and well, 
went splat and met their demise. To focus on the answer to that question, the Kent Group actually did a Mythbuster-style study to review the notion that somehow the shape of modern cars protects the bugs. The Kent researchers did what they should do, recruited classic car drivers and ran the study again. The answer is, old car versus new car made no difference. The old cars still showed that there was a massive decline. That short aside, behind me, and yeah, I'm feeling better, there's an interesting follow-up for all of this of interest. There's an app for that. You can download the Bugs Matter app from the UK-based survey on your phone. Go through the tutorial and conduct a personal survey. They also have a website to create a splatometer card to place on your vehicle for conducting said survey. To wrap this up, biomass matters. Without it, plants, and that equates to forage for our honeybees and native pollinators, they matter in the great big ecosystem that is our planet. And if this helps in some way to illustrate what the impact is from humans on the earth, then I think it's a good way to go. You do not have to be a tree hugger to realize what's going on. And if it takes connecting with this windshield phenomenon to get the message out, then I'm all for it. You could look for some resource links in the show notes, including a link to the research data presented for the 2021 report and a printable Bugs Matter card instruction set. Roundtable number three, 3C36. This roundtable is one of those news snippets that's based on something you see in your newsfeed that may pop up and be of interest. And then it goes away and leaves you to wonder whatever happened to it. The headline B.C. scientists may have found a new way to protect big colonies from deadly mites is one of those that goes on to tell you about a compound that kills varroa mites. I think we beekeepers are used to seeing things like this that are in the incipient stages and inevitably, unfortunately, they encounter some failure along the way and as a result they disappear from the landscape. Let me spend a minute to tell you what this is about. British Columbia researchers from Simon Fraser University have been conducting research with a compound currently called 3C36 and work to deter moths from feeding on food crops. They were in essence trying to develop something that would interfere with the insect's food choices. Along the way, they had an idea to test it against other arthropods, and among them was the varroa mite. This side activity paid dividends as they were able to observe that it paralyzed mites, causing them to fall off the bees while having little to no impact to bees. I looked around for more information about this, and to be honest, it must be either very early days, or there's nothing more than a simple declaration of this finding with a promise that more work is going to be ongoing. They are running some small trials currently to see how this is really playing out, and so far the results look to be promising in both the lab and in the field. Accompanying the article was a notion that they are testing the compound in around 40 hives, which, to me, is an indicator, if you understand these studies, that it's really in its infancy. When you have things like this that go to big scale, they do massive amounts of testing. If it's a little localized 
test with 40 hives, that's kind of a sign usually that it's in small scale. The quotes from the SFU team are pragmatic about the timelines. In other words, it's going to take years and some of the factors that come into play, if it turns out that it works, they're going to have to get it approved, industrialized, and, well, there has to be a cost for making that work so that it can actually become a product for us beekeepers to use. There are also some statements that indicate that resistance is something that's always a concern. Still, we might look back at this point in time and know that there was some small soundbite of discovery that became another tool in our arsenal to combat the varroa mite, and we'll have to wait, listen, and wonder for any news of how it's progressing. I'll have a link in the show note to the one-page press release from the Simon Fraser University, which echoes what I've shared here today. Roundtable number four, everything is better with honey. I saw this suggestion and I find the premise interesting as another option. It does one thing that I like, which extends the use of something that you think has utility, but sometimes you're unsure what to do with. Just hear me out on this one. One of my favorite things when it comes to imbibing an adult beverage is a product called Celtic Honey. In doing some background on the brand, it's distributed by Castle Brands Incorporated out of New York, but it is produced in Ireland. It's described as a honey-based 30% alcohol by volume liqueur made by Irish whiskey, honey, and spices. It might be hard to come by in your market, but should you have an interest in what the bottle looks like, check the show notes, as I provided a link to both a wiki article on the product as well as a URL for the product website. I know this is too much information, but as an aside, the website provides a locator that affords the capability to determine if it's sold by you. Okay, now to the point of this round table. I've always wondered if you could take a good base whiskey and infuse it with local honey and get a similar product. It appears there is hope, and the process discovered seems fortuitous for beekeepers who extract their own honey. What's even better about it is it's not complicated in any manner. The suggestion deserves credit where credit is due, and kudos to Casey Goggin for sharing the tip. At least I hope that's how you pronounce her name. Okay, ready? Pour whiskey into a jar and add a section of wax laden with any remnants after honey extraction. Hmm, Kevin moment. As an aside, I think about this, and I know that there are so many occasions where you find an errant section of comb built in some errant place in the hive and you scoop it out, you put it in a temporary container and you wander into the house wondering what you're going to do with this thing. And for me, that happens several times a year. End of Kevin moment. Casey's photos show that she placed some comb into a large ball jar, poured whiskey over it and simply said that you shake it every time you walk past for the duration of three days. And then she filtered it three times through muslin cloth and Voila, she had a honey-flavored whiskey. Kind of think about the process and wonder. While I'm sure it will benefit from the honey, the Delta might actually be the wax addition. It feels like, and perhaps this is wishful thinking on my part, that maybe the wax is going to impart some sort of flavors too into the final product, which is interesting. To that end, there's another variation on the theme for this. 
For us, we often take our wax cappings from extraction and leave it outside for the bees to clean up. They pick through every morsel, and you end up with a very clean collection in the end that sometimes resembles like wax flakes. It looks like potato flakes, but they're wax. And yes, the bees do a phenomenal job at removing all the honey remnants from that. They do not leave a morsel. An alternative way to taking your cappings and getting them clean is to clean it with whiskey. You put the cappings in the jar, pour the whiskey over in a similar manner, and the spirits remove the honey and once strained, you get clean wax. Now in this case, I've not tried this method, so I'm not sure if there's any vestige of alcohol on the wax upon completion, but wouldn't it be interesting if you used it for lip balm or candles? Light that baby up. <laughs> Given my recent foray into extracts, I think it might be compelling to chunk a vanilla bean in the mix while I'm at it. Coming back to where I started, one of my favorite indulgences is the aforementioned Celtic honey, and dang, wouldn't it be cool if you could make it at home? So there you have it, two possibilities to give a try, and a new consideration to think of when you're looking at some honey and honeycomb that you're contemplating things to do with. If you want to give this a try, let me know what spirit you used. It doesn't have to be whiskey, by the way. And tell us how it turned out for you, Kevin at bkcorner.org. Look in the show notes for a video of Casey washing cappings with alcohol. Thanks to Casey for the tip. Roundtable number 5B, free no more. I have mixed feelings about what I'm about to share. In a moment of reminiscence, I think back to the feature done about the product of Bee Free Honey, H-O-N-E-E, that I spoke of in show 109 and again in episode 217. Bee Free Honey was not honey, but a vegan alternative to honey that could be found in some supermarkets. The product gained quite a bit of notoriety, a moment in the sun if you will, when received promotion and backing from the television show Shark Tank. I see now an article that has been around apparently some time that this particular product has gone off the market back in 2019. I kind of feel a pang of remorse for its demise because in my way of thinking it's an interesting way to have a yin to the yang in the universe but fear not. I heard on an episode of the Gastropod podcast recently, a short aside from some competitors who took up the torch as the hosts were discussing alternative products in the marketplace for honey, and it sure sounds like the derivatives are very similar to the bee-free product. I'll keep an ear out and an eye out for this, as I'm sensitive to the fact that sometimes people in the world do not appreciate what we beekeepers do. I have encountered some people who do not like honey, if that's truly a thing. I don't understand it. And also have encountered those who are vegan and will not take honey. As such, it's always nice for us beekeepers to have a response that there are alternatives to honey in the marketplace. Roundtable number six, Cottage Law, New Jersey. Will the honorable chairperson read the tally? For Bill A3991 in the regular session sponsored by the Honorable Representative Fryman, we consider the status of this approved PL2022C124 with a total of 71 yay and zero nay. 
That was the words I imagined that were spoken December 1st, 2022, as the New Jersey Assembly Bill 3991 was approved, stating that raw honey is now exempt from the cottage laws in New Jersey. And so comes the close, mostly, of the footnote in history where you had to go through all kinds of administrivia to be able to sell raw honey in New Jersey. This translates to no longer needing to register, take training, and other overhead stipulations for hobbyist beekeepers, and we are free once again to sell a bottle of honey to our friends, neighbors, and community without skirting the law if we did not adhere to the regulations prior. I use the word mostly because, well, if you have some products of the hive where you're extending your product line, you're still subject to said cottage laws and all of the requirements still stand. Mix in some cinnamon to your honey, cottage law. Selling caramels made from honey, cottage law. The legislation passed only exempts raw honey, and if you're doing anything that constitutes creating a product that uses honey in combination with something else, other than what you get out of the extractor, you are very likely under the requirement of the New Jersey Cottage Law, so please keep that in mind and follow suit. Got to say thanks to the New Jersey Beekeepers Association and all those involved who kind of organized the effort to promote two legislators to make this happen. Uh, we personally held off from selling honey for our business. We wanted to start one in 2022, and as it goes... Awaiting this change, which was forecast, I just created new business cards for our company and we're looking forward to kicking off our campaign for Sunshine Hills Raw Local Honey coming soon to a market near you in the spring. I'll have a link to Bill NJA3991 Raw Honey Exemptions from Cottage Law in the show notes if you want to read it over. Roundtable number seven, last one on the stack, honeycomb glass jars. I guess what comes sometimes goes, and that is unfortunate. When I prepped this to bring up on an episode, I had found a honeycomb glass jar, one quart size from Dollar General for sale on the web. Organize your kitchen in style with this honeycomb quart jar that is perfect for holding dry ingredients, spices, crafts, and office supplies, and more. This is a $1.50 for a quart jar that has a very attractive appearance. It's like a mason jar that had an imprinted honeycomb, and yes, it was done the right way, pattern across the entire surface, and in the center it had a round circle with the impression of a bee on it, and it had a very attractive black metal cap on the top. A beautiful product. Uh, I, I could see selling special honey or something in this. It, most honeys are sold in clear jars so that, yeah, you want to make sure that uh, you could see the product. But in this case, I think it would have been pretty novel to have them. And that's a pretty decent uh, price for that size. But alas, if you look on dollargeneral.com, they're not there anymore. I'm not sure if this is a seasonal product. And it'll come back. But if you want to see what they look like, I'll have some pictures on the website. And every once in a while, especially as spring approaches, maybe you could take a peek over there at Dollar General. Or float around at Dollar General if you happen to have one of them near you. And look for these jars. They're really quite attractive. Roundtables behind us. Let's turn to topic number one. Microclimate New Jersey. 
I stumbled upon something I found interesting and wanted to share this with you to see if you wanted to find some interest in researching the geography in and around you. Looking down on the U.S. while flying back from Los Angeles last November, I spent some time on the flight peering out of the plane window and basking in the wonder of the shape of the land as we cross from west to east. I witnessed gorges, mountain ranges, flat farmland, snow-covered mountains, canyons, and other features all on full display. The diversity ties to what I'm going to talk about in this feature, and it has to do with how the land influences weather locally. I will share that I have had this impression of how weather works from the time that I was a kid in New Jersey when it comes to our region. When we were younger, we used to love sitting out on the covered front porch of our home on Maple Avenue and looking out at the sky in front of our house when storms were coming. Our current house is in a hollow on the floor of the Emerald Valley with the Kingwood Ridge to one side and the Saraland Mountains to the other. Kevin moment. <laughs> I should write a song about that. My team at work used to tease me when I said we were in the hollow in the floor of the valley. But I digress, end of Kevin moment. Now everyone gets storms where they live, but I noticed when we moved to our current residence that large thunderstorm masses accumulated to our west, and when they come out to our region, they typically split up as they come across the eastern part of Pennsylvania. They tend to track to eastern Pennsylvania, and then they head either north of Interstate 78, which runs horizontally across the state at the latitude of New York City, or south below Route 1, which runs diagonally across the state, starting at Trenton and going north-northeast towards Perth Amboy. Now, I always contemplated that there was some geological feature in Pennsylvania-New Jersey border, say the Delaware Water Gap Formation, that possibly had a bearing on that and influenced the storms in Pennsylvania before they get to our region of the state. Let me say that one of my hypotheses was this. Perhaps the approaching weather patterns encounter some geological formations, say the high hills and ranges of Pennsylvania to our west, and it changes at those patterns. I envision that the higher elevation mountains to our west are cooler and impact of the geological changes there cause the water carrying weather formation to dump their payloads. Dumping the water mass that was coming our way resulting in expending its energy so to speak. We witness this quite a bit from New Jersey. Storms that are quite large showing red on the radar and we look like we're going to get walloped transition back to light green as they drop their mass of precipitation on the eastern part of Pennsylvania before the weather formation crosses the Jersey line. If they do get to the Jersey line, they typically go north of 78 or sometimes south of Route 1. So hang on to that for a moment and let me take you down another path. I want to talk about a really interesting video I found where retired National Weather Service meteorologist Jim Eberwine from Jersey Devil Weather spoke of the factors that influence New Jersey weather. In this video, he specifically outlines how the geological formations and topology of New Jersey impact day-to-day -day and weather event situations like storms, tornadoes, hurricanes, and the like. 
Now this particular video was presented by the Pinelands Commission and it had a focus on the unique Pine Barrens of New Jersey and the distinctive features of that region's weather, sandy soil, and other things that were large enough to have a profound impact on New Jersey weather overall. The Pinelands, if you're not familiar with what it is, is aptly described. It's an area defined in the state of New Jersey with sandy soil, many water features close to the surface, and it's described as covered with dense pine trees. I was surprised to learn that that feature covers 22% of the state. I didn't realize that it was actually that big. Uh, Kevin moment. My brain is telling me I can't move on. I have to take a second to connect something regarding the topic. The meteorologist's handle is Jersey Devil Weather. If you're not from the region, this may not connect, but we Jerseyans have our mythical creature in the Jersey Devil, kind of like our own Bigfoot, if you will. This creature is said to hail from the Pinelands, so it seems apropos that the Jersey Devil weather guy is being featured for speaking on weather in the Pinelands. And he jests, since he lives over in that region, that he's seen the Jersey Devil in his travels. End of Kevin moment. So let's get into some specifics and takeaways, and I could reset my thoughts of how weather is influenced from my region and ultimately how that has an impact on the forage and fauna for our bees. In the video, he covers influencing features of New Jersey and how the land impacts weather events. And I'll sum up some of the higher elements of this. True to the topic, the Pinelands have their own microclimate. The sandy soils, the water at the surface make that region either hot and cold given the size of the feature. The facts that surface is different from any other part of the state, and now that you know it's so large, that makes it a factor in the overall weather. Whether it's a hurricane coming over the region, or maybe how it holds excessive heat in the summer, the uniqueness can be made make a significant difference on how weather occurs when storm features are passing through New Jersey. Now, a moment ago, I said weather comes from our west through Pennsylvania, but sometimes it comes off the ocean. And as it passes over the Pine Barrens and comes over New Jersey, well, you could see that that would have an impact. New Jersey, of course, is a shore state, and the influence of the water presence along the shoreline, it's not uncommon for the eastern part of the state to get snow in the winter because of the moisture, while the rest of the state misses it. It's safe to say that climate coming off the ocean has a large impact on the eastern side of the state and those of us inland could have completely different from weather from what they're having. Now there's another feature, the role of the Delaware Bay and the interior bays of the Jersey Shore at the southern part of the state. Now the Delaware River is only four miles west of our home. It runs along the west side of the state and it empties into a large triangle-shaped bay just west of Cape May, New Jersey. In the video, Everwine spoke of how that bay holds warmer water and that there are also other areas along the coastline that stay warmer based on waters flowing out of the Pinelands and into the coastal bays. The takeaway here is they hold heat and some moisture and any weather patterns coming from the left side of the state or the right side of the state 
traverse across the state, pick up the water, the heat, the moisture, and that impacts everything from northern New Jersey and into even New York City. So if it's not evident by now, I'll say it out loud. My layman's takeaway is, when weather events are crossing areas of temperature fluctuations driven by geological features in the land, it results in different phenomena for the surrounding spaces. In the case of what was just said, Everwine noted that New Jersey Route 9 region is known to have more storms in the summer, for example, because the air passing over those warmed bays along the New Jersey shore results in pop-up storms all summer. Continuing the takeaways of the weather phenomenon and its impacts to our region, in those years where we have persistent snow on the ground, the average temperature will be on the colder side. Presume it snows in December and it's cold enough that the snow doesn't melt. On average, the temperature will be colder for the month. If you want to do a comparison, records show that the state average would be 47 degrees Fahrenheit in New Jersey without snow cover. However, if the ground is snow covered, the average temperature for that month runs 8 degrees cooler at 39 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, New Jersey in 2023, we've had no snow. I can't remember winter when we have had no snow. We've had none. So guess what? Our temperatures have been running far above normal. Air moving up a mountain will condense in the cool air of the mountain and cause precipitation. Air moving down off a mountain will compress, heat up, and in the process it tends to dry out. What was interesting is the weather map in Everwine's video showed some pockets of valleys in the state that also have an impact. Valleys are where land transitions to highs and lows, dropping off the valley and picking up when exiting. The most prominent ones for New Jersey are in the Sussex region, upper northwest New Jersey. Then there were the inland flats almost all along Burlington County. And right in the middle, well, wouldn't you know, it showed our area of Hunterdon County as a valley designation. Now there is a consideration that we should all probably be familiar with, that being the air mass and its origin. What I mean is where do the air masses that come to your region originate and what are some of the customary characteristics for what is normal in their formation. As a rule, air masses that make their way from the north are drier because they're coming from Canada and there's no appreciable water up there for them to carry down into the area. In contrast, ones that come from the south tend to carry more moisture over the region, and that could be contributed to the influence of the Gulf of Mexico, and any of the moisture picked up while sweeping down through the south and then turning north in the trough that tends to dominate summer months in the northeast. Air masses and the jet stream have a profound impact on the amount of rain, heat, and wind that systems deliver, and they also steer our temperatures and have an everyday impact on what our bees have to deal with. Now, at points in the presentation, Everwine cited that Rutgers has a large subset of data about New Jersey. So it's here that I take a turn away from his presentation and turn to the statements from the website Climate dot rutgers dot edu the rutgers sites are detailed with a number of facts as written and i'm not going to try and sum them up as any full body of work i think what i want to do 
or what is best is to give you a rundown of what they had to say for regional impacts of New Jersey on weather. I'll start with the north, go to center, and call out a few other odds and ends that haven't been covered already from the Everwine disclosures. And uh, yes, there is a central New Jersey for those who doubt it. Rutgers says so. Now bear in mind, all this is quoted directly from their website. I'm reciting it verbatim. Do note that I have picked only certain passages to keep this a little more compact. And if you're interested in learning more, do visit their website and get lost in what they have to say. I will, of course, have a link in the show notes. Northern Zone The northern climate zone covers about one quarter of New Jersey and consists mainly of elevated highlands and valleys which are part of the Appalachian uplands. Surrounded by land, this region can be characterized as having continental type of climate with minimal influence from the Atlantic Ocean, except when the winds contain an easterly component. Prevailing winds are from the southwest in the summer and from the northwest in the winter. Being in the northernmost portion of the state with small mountains of up to 1,800 feet in elevation, the northern zone normally exhibits a colder temperature regime than other climate regions in the state. The highlands and mountains in this area play a role in making the climate of the northern zone different from the rest of the state. Clouds and precipitation are enhanced by orographic effects. For instance, following a cold frontal passage, air forced to rise over the mountains produces clouds and even precipitation, while the rest of the state observes clear skies. The latter is due in part to subsiding air flows off of the highlands. During the warm season, thunderstorms are responsible for most of the rainfall. Hurricanes and frontal passages are less frequent during this time. Thunderstorms spawned in Pennsylvania and New York State often move into northern New Jersey where they often reach maximum development in the evening. This region has about twice as many thunderstorms as the coastal zone where the nearby ocean helps to stabilize the atmosphere. Now before I go into Central, there's a word that requires unpacking, orographic. It is defined as the study of topographical relief of mountains it's not unlike the statements earlier about how up the mountain and down the mountain has an impact on what's passing over. So this is where I'm going to take a moment to tell you that I probably killed you with all that, but actually that's a pretty extensive part of the weather of New Jersey. There's another zone, central zone, where you draw a line from say Newark to Philadelphia and it covers what is the Newark urban area and the Camden urban area and that swath through the area of the center of the state kind of going north to south. It runs in a diagonal slash across the state. Unlike most people who describe central New Jersey as north of Hunterdon County, uh, that quarter between 78 and Route 1 that I was talking about, they have a little different take on that. And it has to do with the weather bearing areas. Specifically, all of the developed urban areas with the concrete and buildings and roads tend to hold more heat. And that's the defining geographic of that particular area. The phenomena is often referred to as heat islands. And you'll see that over the northern area next to New York City and the 
Central South area, which is Camden and such, where those cities are. We've talked about the Pine Barren Zones and the impacts of that. That leaves the Southwest Zone. This is the area around the Delaware Bay. And what they say differently than what was said by Everwine is that this region receives less precipitation than North and South due to the fact that it doesn't have mountains. It's just flat. The weather passes over it and doesn't tend to change from the structures of geography. I found that kind of interesting. The prevailing winds are from the southwest, except in the winter, where west to northwest dominates that region, and high humidity and moderate temperatures prevail when winds flow from the south or the east. There is also the coastal zone, which tends to be, as they say, dominated by the sea breezes. When the land is warmed by the sun, heated air rises, allowing the cool air at the ocean surface to spread inland. That creates kind of that microclimate that we're all familiar with. If you've ever stayed down there in the Jersey Shore, you know that. As you're driving to the Jersey Shore, you tend to drive through this bubble that takes you into a zone where they have different weather right along the beaches. It's said to say that that area transforms to about 5 to 10 miles inland, but depending on the weather patterns, can go from 25 to 40 miles inland, influenced by that. I think that's kind of neat to think about. And actually, I think this is a good place to stop. I've given you a taste of what I was after, and, you know, hopefully it makes you think about this. I've always wondered about the weather, but to actually dig in on how geography has a play in it and learn a little bit about something is quite fascinating. And I spent far more time than what I've told you about just looking through the information about New Jersey climate overviews, topology, and other things because I've just thought it was fascinating the more I dug in. Again, if you look in the show notes, there'll be some links there, but where are you and how does the weather dominate what you do? I think we all come to an understanding in time as beekeepers that we're almost like little meteorologists. You have to watch the weather coming every week determine what's what and have that factor into what you're going to do in your operation. Hot, cold, warm enough to inspect, rain coming, storms approaching, all of those play a factor into your plan. And whenever you have blocks of time, you're always hoarding the weather in advance of it to make sure that it's simpatico for whatever you have on the schedule. So knowing the weather in this amount of detail is not trivial. It's actually an important understanding of how you conduct your operation and hopefully I've encouraged you to take a look at that and see how it measures up for wherever you call home. Topic number two, haven't done this for a while, I call this one, oh yeah. Caramelized honey gelato from honey.com. The first thing I'm gonna say about gelato is I don't know what planet I've been living on it wasn't the planet of gelato. Just not really familiar with this product, but lately I've kind of figured out that gelato is awesome. <laughs> I really like it. There's something about the texture and the creaminess and the density. It's different from ice cream, which I'll just leave it at that. It's really, really good. Uh, let me tell you what's in this. Two thirds cup of honey, half teaspoon of lemon juice, and a tablespoon of water. You take those things to prepare a caramelized honey syrup. 
not as hard as it sounds. You really put all those things in a heavy bottom sauce pot, bring it to a simmer and cook it for eight to 10 minutes. You're really just looking for it to turn to an amber color and then you're gonna remove it and set it aside. It's not like making caramel, which is a little bit harder. Then you're off to prepare the base. Here you have one and a half cups of whole milk, three sprigs of something very strange in an ice cream, basil. We bought a fresh basil plant because you can't get basil this time of year. And they happen to be selling one at ShopRite and pulled the sprigs off. And now the basil plant sitting on the winter on the windowsill waiting for spring to be planted out in the garden. Two large egg yolks, half teaspoon of kosher salt, and a half cup of mascarpone cheese. That's something I'll come back to in a minute. To prepare the base in a medium heavy bottom sauce pot, bring the milk and basil to a simmer, remove it from the heat and allow it to steep for 10 minutes. When I say simmer, you're really just turning it up to medium until you start to see the bubbles around the outside edge and then you're going to pull it off the heat and let it steep. You remove the basil out of it and you whisk in the warm honey syrup caramelized that you created earlier. So at this point you have caramelized honey milk flavored with basil and it's heated through to a simmer so it's pretty warm. What you have to do next is temper the egg yolks and the process for this is you put your egg yolks in a separate bowl. Stainless steel is usually a good choice for this. Beat the egg yolks until they're combined and mixed and you're going to take a little bit of the warm honey milk mixture and add it to the eggs, just a little at a time. And what you're trying to do here is raise the temperature of the eggs to equal the honey milk mixture without cooking them so fast as to curdle them. This tempering method, it's not as complicated as it sounds. Add a little splash, add another splash, add a little bit more. And then once you get to the point where you have about half the cooking liquid in, then you could take the cooking liquid egg combination mixture and add it back to the saucepan that's running on the stove. Here you're going to heat it up slowly and really what you want to do is cook the custard so to speak because that's what you're making. You're going to cook this over a low flame for an additional five minutes, stirring it constantly, whisking constantly is a good way to say this. Once it thickens up a little bit, you're going to remove it from the heat. You can add the pinch of salt at any point in the process here. And at this juncture, you're going to pull it off the heat and you're going to mix it in with mascarpone cheese. Mascarpone cheese. Do you know what this is? It's really just heavy whipping cream that's been separated into the whey and the cream and it's the byproduct of that. I know that you could buy this at the store. I don't actually know where to buy it but I found a recipe online. This guy from Italy, I don't even know how to pronounce the name of his channel, makes all of these Italian things. I found out how to make amaretto and other things when I was making extracts and along the way he told you how to make this at home. So this is the recipe for how to do that. And it's really easy. Two and a quarter cups of whipping cream, 
and two teaspoons of fresh squeezed lemon juice. You add the cream to a saucepan over medium-low heat and you heat it until it becomes 184 degrees. When it reaches 184 degrees Fahrenheit, I think that's 84 Celsius for the others, you remove it from the heat and you add the lemon juice, whisking it in a couple drops at a time until it's all there. And if you let it sit, it will eventually separate the curds from the fats in the, in the cream and you'll end up with cheese. What you do is set up a pot with an interior colander and you line it with clean towels and you pour the cream mixture into it and the liquids get absorbed by the towels and pour through the colander to the pot below and what you're left with is something akin to Italian cream cheese. That's what you're mixing your ice cream into. As you mix it in, do make sure that your mascarpone is room temperature. A lot of times after you make the mascarpone, mascarpone, carpone, I can never say the word, you put it in the fridge to hold it, but when the time comes to mix your ice cream, make sure that it's room temperature, otherwise it'll be really cold and hard to mix in. After you have everything completely and utterly mixed, you can strain the mixture through a sieve, Cover it with plastic and put it in your refrigerator for at least four hours so it's thoroughly chilled and overnight is better for development of flavor. When the time comes to make your ice cream, turn your ice cream maker on, hit the gelato setting and add it and off you go. It will blend to a soft set and you can eat it soft set. But trust me when I say, put it in the freezer, let it cool again overnight if you can, and enjoy it the next day. Creamy, sweet, burnt caramel flavor, and the honey comes through 100% in this. To my taste, it was actually a little too sweet. I don't know if it had to do with the honey we used. It was our honey, of course. And you can taste a little bit of the basil. And it's not weird because it combines really well with the caramelized. If if I had to say this and it wasn't true to the case, I had to beat Sharon off with a stick. <laughs> she loved it. And it's taken me down the path of creating other gelato recipes. Which have been completely and other, utterly outstanding. And one thing that I will say is not all gelato recipes I'm learning are the same. I made one last night, actually, that is a little bit different. It's mascarpone and fig gelato. And this one, it uses whole milk, sugar, cornstarch, heavy cream, vanilla extract, and liquid pectin. There's no eggs. It really, really, really is good. Maybe someday I'll share this one out there, but I can put this recipe up. It came right from Cuisinart, the ice cream maker. Uh, strange. It's a little chewy. I, I don't know how to describe the texture, but it's still creamy and incredibly unctuous and good. So, yeah, gelato. Who knew? I'll post both of these recipes in the show notes so that you can try them out if you're so inclined. They're both pretty ambitious for gelato recipes, but I'm in the world of gelato. The next one, Giada de Laurentiis, has one that has hazelnuts in it using... Yes, hazelnut spread. You know which one I mean. 
we're going to make that one next. So it is time for the first proper local hive report of 2023. And that's kind of exciting because it's a signal that spring is approaching. I went out and perused the yard over the last couple of months here and there to see what was going on on all the warm days. And honestly, I went back and looked, I want to say two to three weeks ago on a really warm day and so much was flying that it was almost impossible to tell what was alive and what was not. I will say here and now that even an experienced beekeeper like myself that's been doing this for over a decade, there are times when you stand at a hive and you just really can't tell. That being said, there are certain clues that I've found that give me a sense of awareness as to whether a colony is alive or dead. And broodminders notwithstanding, if you stand at a colony and you see bees inspecting other bees upon landing, they're checking everybody out to see if they're copacetic to go inside. A hive that's dead doesn't have that going on at the entrance. The other thing that I noticed is if you wear a veil, bee jacket, something, and you stand physically next to the hive and you just look out, there's a different pattern between bees that are flying. They're bobbing and weaving like a boxer and bees exiting the hive and doing orientation flights. If you go out in the heat of the day where there's the most sun shining on the front of the hive and you come upon that experience where the new bees that were born just recently come out of the hive for the first time, you'll see them orienting and there's no doubt that that is a functional colony. Now, yes, there are times when robber bees come out of the hive and they fly a loop or whatever to get a sense of the surroundings and then fly off and go do their thing. But I think if you look close enough, you could tell. So now I guess I'll start with the bad news for us. Uh, Bob Kloss went out Friday and took a look at the hives that I have at Valley Crest. And at least two of the three there are gone. The way that he could tell is there are robber stains on the outsides of the hive. Bees that are robbing and tearing and shredding and walking through excess honey in the colony and have it all over their feet will walk down the exit, if it's a top entrance for example, and deposit wax and debris and sticky substances on the outside of the hive. Those are called robber stains. If you look at a colony that's being decimated from robbing, you'll see that quite a bit. And there's an unmistakable sign there for you to know that those hives are dead. Two of the three hives he looked at have robber stains on it. Now the one to the right on the bench, and I'm just visually picturing, picturing this in my mind. He said there were bees coming and going from the top entrance. Let's stick a pin in that. We'll come back to it for a second and I'll come back to the local yard. I have two spots on our property where we keep bees. The main yard where it has where there are 12 pads and then off to the side where the yard used to be on our property I have a couple hive stands with three hives on them. I'll start with those that are over by the satellite dish. I know that two of those hives are alive. I could tell by coming and going that they're really strong, a lot of stuff going on, no problem there. 
The third one looked dead for sure. I was positive it was dead, but I popped the cover on it and darn if it doesn't have two seams of bees. When you open a colony that is being robbed, you could mistakenly see a lot of bees inside something like that and know that, you know, it's alive, but actually it's really not. When you open the roof and you look down into the seams, are the bees resonant or are they trying to get out? I had described this in one of the last shows. It's a totally different appearance, and if they're hanging out on the comb like they own it, then chances are that's the original colony. Now, two of those hives look big enough that I don't think there's any problem. In fact, I went to pop the roof off of one of them, and the bees came spilling out, and I said, hmm, nope, don't need to worry about that one. Uh, this one, there's, there's only two frames, and this is where I say, sitting here on February 12th, We're halfway through winter as far as I'm concerned. You need to make it to April 1st. And most hives, the colonies will make it to December before they start to die, coming out of a season. And they have to make it from December to April to do it. And February marks the midpoint, so to speak. It's usually March 15th that I declare victory. But there's an interesting dynamic going on here. Uh, at least to me, it seems early. There's crocus up in the yard. Now, typically we see snowdrops and some other things, and then we see crocus, but there's half dozen, and within the next week, especially since there's going to be some 60-degree days this week, I suspect that they're going to pop out all over the place. The only hope that I have is that it doesn't turn cold again at some point and kill off all the early season forage for these bees. Of the 12 hives in the main apiary, three of them are dead dead. No doubt about it. One of them I lost really early on, and two of them, I've checked them, they're deceased. I thought that the top bar hive was dead, but you know what? Out of curiosity, I saw quite a bit of stuff going on at the entrance, and I took the roof off, popped one of the inner covers, and darn if it doesn't have seams of bees. It's so deceiving when you look at a colony, because sometimes, for some reason, some of them just don't do anything. They don't come, they don't go, but they're in there doing their thing. Where the one next to it is boiling with bees going out and doing whatever they're doing. That is the case. The hive, which is an all-medium hive sitting next to it, I have broodminders in there. And I know for a fact that hive is fully alive and has a lot of bees by the heat that you're generating in the sensors. That thing is booming and going to town. Next to it on the left is the lion's hive massive amount of activity yet looking at the top bar you would not know it's alive but given the fact that i opened it up and looked now i went hive by hive and looked at the entrances and there's clearly ones that are alive and a couple of them that they look like they're dead dead on pad number 10 is a six over six polystyrene hive. I thought the hive was dead. I popped the top cover off and the entire top is full of bees. They're up in the top box, but that's what happens. Now, am I concerned that they're gonna die from starvation or whatever? I'm not. I fed every one of those colonies enough. And oddly enough, and I have to say this, one of the six frame colonies that didn't make it, pad number 13, if you will, had it sitting over to the side. I picked that up and I put it on the empty pad that was pad number four. I had to heft that box. It was heavy as could be. 
and the thing is open. So if bees in the apiary get to a warm day and they're hungry, they don't have anything to eat, I don't need to feed them. They can go over to pad number four and take whatever they want. Is this a great plan? No, it's not. But ultimately, if these colonies make it through, which I'm thinking they will, I will probably disperse whatever honey's in that box to new colonies as I build them up anyway. So if they're getting it prematurely, that's okay with me. And I don't have to go out and feed and open hives and make fondant and do all that other thing. It's the lazy man's way <laughs> of doing it. But it's really about the insurance policy of feeding the heck out of the bees in the fall. So you don't have to worry about them starving. I looked at uh, a lot of Facebook posts lately where people are claiming it's so warm and, you know, the bees are starving and I'm getting messages from people. I'm on the risk plan. I think I fed them enough that I am not going to crack them open and feed them. I'm not worried about it. So, hmm. I only lost three hives out of those 12. And the other three on the other side are open. I lost two out of the three out at Valley Crest. Let me see what the math turns out to be. I think if I added that up right, it's 12 out of 18, which to me, it's not a terrible number, and I guess this is where I start to keep coaching myself, as I do every year, that until we get to March, you don't count hives. <laughs> you get a general assessment, just so you have a sense of how you're doing, and sometimes I get to really low numbers this time of year, and I start to dread the fact that I'm such a terrible beekeeper, but you know, so far, so good this year especially since no treatments last year all new queens and I'm really interested to see how big the colonies are coming out of winter so local hive report yeah that's pretty good talking to my brother two of his two hives made it through at least that's where he is at this stage too so not too shabby of course, it's early February. We're just approaching the Daytona 500, and I'll be happier when we get to about March 15th. Then I'll count my chickens. But local hive report, all's good on the Western Front. And check, local hive report done. Well, that's going to wrap it up for this episode. We've got spring coming right around the corner, and that starts a number of beekeeping meetings that we typically attend. We'll see how that plays out this Saturday is the New Jersey Beekeepers Association Winter Meeting being held down at the Rutgers Eco Complex. We'll be heading down to Burlington for that one and looking forward to catching up with a bunch of friends after a long winter. I wanted to share that my eyeball is doing great. I cannot believe how amazing the recovery is. When I close my right eye and I look across to any of the screens that I have in front of me, I can actually read the text. What a vast improvement. Thanks to those who sent notes of encouragement, and I have to say, I am super thrilled that it is better than I could have ever believed. And they said it's going to take six to eight months to heal, and it'll only get better over time. So, yeah, what a great development that is, and I'm happy to report that to everybody. And again, thanks for those who are asking how I'm doing. With that, I think it's time to close down the episode, as we always say. Like our beloved bees, when beekeepers go together, we accomplish great things. Thanks for listening, everyone, and be well.